Hello, and welcome to the Brookwood Church Ministries podcast. My name is David Wildman, and I'm one of the leaders in adult discipleship here at Brookwood Church. The message you're about to hear was given by Fenton Moorhead, and it was recorded at the Men's Connecting Point at Brookwood Church. We pray this encourages you in your walk with Christ. Thank you, Tom, and thank you so much for your leadership with our men's ministry and all the guys on the men's leadership team. appreciate uh, how you lead and uh, serve. Uh, It's my honor to to introduce our speaker tonight. Uh, Our speaker is uh, Fenton Moorhead. Uh, Many of you may know him. Fenton was born and raised in Miami, Florida. I think uh, a lot of those who were born and raised at that time might call it Miami. Maybe your mom called it Miami. Miami, Florida. He's a true native of Miami. He was led to Christ by his brother at the age of 12. Went to school at Mississippi College, Baylor, and uh, Southeastern Seminary. Then uh, served churches in West Palm Beach, Florida. Pastored in Salisbury, North Carolina, Denver, Colorado, Sugarland, Texas, outside of Houston. Uh, he retired as a pastor in 2001. And then after getting a reboot with heart bypass surgery, he decided he wanted to keep going. So he came to be Brookwood's mission pastor in 2002 and currently serves as Brookwood's pastor emeritus, which kind of means pastor available for whatever. Um, He's been instrumental in helping to start several nonprofit ministries, including many of you may be familiar with Set Free Alliance, but uh, most important... I believe, is Fenton has greatly influenced me and several significant people in my life. While he was a pastor in Texas, he hired and developed an associate pastor named Perry Duggar, who became Brookwood's founding pastor, as well as my friend and my boss. Um, Fenton also fathered one of my best friends and my seminary roommate, his oldest son, Jim, And he fathered my best friend and the person who I love most on this earth, his daughter Amy, who's the best wife a guy could have, and I'm keeping her. (laughs) And he's also a fantastic grandfather to my children and to their cousins. He selflessly loves and cares for his wife Mary and is one of the most generous men I know. And he's used his influence to point people to Christ all over the world. So when he speaks tonight about applying the Bible to your life, he speaks not only with his words, but also with his actions. So I ask you, please welcome my father-in-law, Fenton Moorhead. Thank you, David. Thank you. Great. I appreciate all those kind words. Uh, David is a great son-in-law. It's We've done so many family vacations together, especially when the grandchildren were younger. When they get older, they kind of have their own life, and it's hard to get them together anymore. But for probably a dozen years, we'd do a beach vacation as a family every, every summer, and those were very special times. And uh, knowing David that way, watching him raise his girls, uh, His oldest daughter is with my wife tonight, took her out to eat. Uh, She's between jobs. 
She's a graduate of Vanderbilt, by the way. Uh, had a free ride there, almost free ride. That helps when you're a pastor. And her degree is in biomedical engineering. I can hardly even say that. Uh, I brag on Mary Kate a great deal. Uh, when she took the SAT test to enter college, uh, she aced the math section of it. And I flunked ninth grade algebra. <laughs> so I, I don't know where, where she got that. But uh, anyway, she's interviewing for some biomedical engineering jobs in a number of places, and that's kind of exciting. You know, I don't think I'm going to get this to hold this Bible unless it can be. No, I'm not going to worry about that. Um, <clears throat> getting old is interesting. Uh, just to get a little bit of information, do we have any guys here tonight that are in their 20s? Raise your hand. That is wonderful. That is fantastic. I'm so glad you guys are here. How many guys in their 30s? That's a significant number too. Maybe a couple more than, than those in the 20s. Okay, uh, 40s. All right, now we're going to get to the crowd. Fifties? <laughs> wow. Sixties. That may be the largest group. Seventies? Okay. Anybody in their eighties? Congratulations. Congratulations. I'm not far behind you. The, I, I Googled this recently, the average lifespan in our country right now is 78.7 years. And November 11th, I'll be 79. So, moving on. Um, I heard this. If you're 20 years old, if you look at age like it's a clock, then it's 6 a.m. You're just getting started. Everything's kind of in front of you. If you're 40 years old, it's 12 noon. And time to look back, see what's happened, and time to look forward and make sure you're going in the direction you want to go. If you're 60 years old, it's 6 p.m. You better have your bucket list made and be working on it. And if you're 80 years old, it's past midnight. You're living on borrowed time. And uh, so I'm, I, I reflect on that. Uh, David mentioned uh, that in 2001, I had bypass surgery, quadruple, fortunately in Houston, Texas, and they did a good job. I'm still here. And uh, I did a, a mile on the treadmill this morning in 16 minutes. That isn't bad. So I'm, I'm still going. I'm still working at it. Um, Age is definitely relative to a degree. Attitude has a lot to do with how you handle it. But uh, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff I'd like to tell you. Um, I've got a joke about poor memory, but I can't remember it. <laughs> um, there's a handout on the table. And I want to encourage you. Some of you may be new to really dealing with the Bible. And I hesitate to call it Bible study 
I'm not sure you study the Bible. I think the Bible more studies us. And we experience the scriptures because it's an inspired book. And I don't want anybody to be intimidated by the Bible. It's easy to be. And it's a big book. And it covers thousands of years. And so uh, there's a great deal there. It's easy to get stuck when you're reading the Bible. And I would say to you then, just don't stop. And if you're new to the Bible, I would suggest you not start in Genesis, but rather in the New Testament. Because we understand the Old Testament based on what we've learned in the New Testament. And that that can really be helpful. If you're brand new to the Bible and you're not sure where to start, uh, Billy Graham encouraged people to start with John, the Gospel of John, and that's a great place to begin. If you want to focus on the main teachings of Jesus, then that's called the Sermon on the Mount, and that's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so those are great places just to begin. There are some tools that can really help us today that I think go a long way. And so I've got a little handout for you on the tables. And if you look at Bible study tools, this is an NIV study Bible. And study Bibles are immensely helpful. I wish I'd had one of these when I was first getting started. Uh, They had Bibles that were kind of like study Bibles. The Schofield Reference Bible was one of them. But a study Bible has an introduction to every book in the Bible. And so it gives you some background on every book that you're going to be reading. And some of it may be a little scholarly, but I think it's, it's simple. We're going to do a little study tonight in 1 Corinthians. So this is the introduction in my study Bible to 1 Corinthians. Includes a, a little map of what the city was like in Corinth back then, Corinth in Greece. Uh, one of the places where the Apostle Paul started a church from scratch, and he wrote a letter called 1 Corinthians, one of the letters he wrote, and he wrote it to the church because the church had so many problems. Uh, By the way, if you're looking for a perfect church, don't join it because as soon as you do, it won't be perfect. (laughs) But churches all have problems and all have difficulties. And I'm thankful for this church and their problems because Paul wrote this detailed letter dealing with their specific issues. And one of those issues we're going to deal with tonight, I'm not just going to talk about studying the Bible, we're actually going to study a a passage and see how it applies to our lives. If you don't have a study Bible, I want you to encourage you to research them. And this is one I've had and used It's large print. You can see how big and heavy it is. Um, I've worn some of these out in terms of the the cover and so forth. Um, But I think they used to cost about $50. David, do you have any idea how much a good Bible study costs today? Probably Probably about that price. So you can research it. 
Uh, you can get them where they're not leather bound and they're not as expensive, but it's a great investment and it can really be helpful to you. Now there's today, the online tools to study the Bible are just tremendous. And so I put some suggestions for you in here. Uh, BibleGateway.com, if you go in there and you look up a passage, you then can pick from dozens of different translations and it'll show them to you. And it'll put them side by side. You have to mess with that site to figure things out. There are also tools in there to study by. Uh, the next recommendation, if you go down, studylight.org, dictionaries, VED, that's for Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words. So if there's a word that you're trying to, to, to gain some strength in, that's a place to go. It is a scholarly written book, but the information is in there, and it's, you can dig in it and get something out of it. And so that's a way, uh, and, and then studylight.org, there are commentaries, there are dictionaries, there are encyclopedias of the Bible, and it's a great tool. And there are numerous more if you Google them and make sure it's a sound you know, ministry that you're looking at. So for word study or topical study, that's almost the same thing. Verse-to-verse uh, -verse study, you need a commentary perhaps, so there's a suggestion there. And then if you're looking for a ministry that focuses on helping you study the Bible, there's not a better one than the Navigators. And there's their website that you can also uh, go into and look at. Uh, Rick Warren has been a great deal of help. If you haven't read his books, The Purpose Driven Life is his... Uh, book that he wrote that's been translated in a number, one of the number one sellers of all time across the world. Um, <clears throat> I have, my oldest grandson is Jake. He's 23, I believe. And he's in Indonesia right now. He's been there for a year. And um, my oldest granddaughter, Molly, is in Nepal right now. And she goes back and forth from India to Nepal, she and her husband. You know, God's really blessed me. And uh, Rick Warren's had an impact on their lives, his writings. Anyway, Warren has some keys to application. And you can look at those, but we're going to see those a little bit later in our, in our study tonight. So we're studying the Bible for life change. All right, here we go with the screens. Going to pop some stuff up there for you. A quote that I've always liked is by D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was the famous evangelist before the time of Billy Graham. And he said, the scriptures were not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. And I think that really nails it down. And there's another quote, the Bible knows me much better than I know the Bible. And you could change that to say, much better than I know myself or the Bible. When you read the Bible, when it speaks to you, it touches you, and you have moments of what you could call your heart is warmed. Um, and the Holy Spirit sneaks up on you. 
And God begins to speak to you through the scriptures. And that is maybe why we shouldn't call this study, because encountering the Bible is an experience, a life experience. Uh, I remember distinctly sitting in my room when I was 18 years old. I'd been to a camp, a retreat, in Boca Raton, Florida, and I think it was my first real encounter in depth with the Bible. And suddenly the Bible came alive to me. And at that, at that camp, we memorized the Roman road to salvation, the plan of salvation in the book of Romans, and some other verses that help you lead people to Christ. And those verses, wow, I suddenly had a handle on what I had heard preached for so long. And so if your main experience in relating to Christ is through preaching, when you move on into the Bible, you're going to find a whole nother level of dealing with God and experiencing God. Anyway, when I was 18, I started reading the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and my heart was strangely warmed. It was different. And... Um, so I urge you, don't seek experiences, just let them come. If you don't get them, don't think you're strange. Our personalities are different, and God communicates to us. I think God knows the secret stairway into every human heart, and he'll use the scriptures to walk into your life in a deeper way. So I want to encourage you, and some of you may think, hey, I'm just not gifted at studying. Just let the scripture speak to you. Don't get discouraged. Just keep going. You're not going to get all of it immediately. Okay, so I want to emphasize first, knowledge, we're not studying the Bible to gather knowledge. I love this verse from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, <laughs> I like that, puffs up your ego, while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So as I encounter the scripture, my goal is not knowledge, but to experience the love of God, God's love for me as a person. So here's another reason why you might want to use more than one translation. That's the verse in the New International Version. Now here's the same verse in the New Living Translation. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. Okay, does that make sense? So it's not about getting smart. Uh, can I be really honest with you? I've known some really mean people in my time that thought they knew a great deal about the Bible, and it hadn't changed them, and that's sad. It's sad. 
You know, if you're going to be a pastor of a church, the advice I got was you have to have the heart of a shepherd and the hide of a rhinoceros. You better have a thick skin. And if your goal is to make people like you, you are in a great deal of trouble because you're not going to succeed. And so you have to seek God's face, not the face of people. Now, you have to care for people, for sure, and you have to listen to them. But I discovered it's so hard to listen to mean people. Does that make any sense? Okay, all right. So think about that sometime. Uh, I've found some meanness in myself that I really don't like. I have found some impatience in myself that I really don't like. And I look back at, you know, raising my kids and so forth. Boy, there were a lot of times I could have kept my mouth shut. (laughs) Okay, enough about that. Let's move on. Scripture is truth. We need a standard of truth. If we don't have a standard of truth, we're going to make it up for ourselves. And if you haven't noticed, that's what's going on in the world today. People are simply deciding what they believe truth is based on their own instincts and their own ability to reason and logic. And that tends towards self, doesn't it? So scripture is truth. Here's a verse of scripture. All scripture is inspired or God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, which I think means correcting, and training in the right way to live in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So notice that Scripture is to equip us to live. It's not just head knowledge. It's the experience. Romans 12, 2 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. When we encounter the Bible, it becomes a part of us, and it becomes a way of thinking. And after a while, we'll find ourselves thinking the way the Bible teaches about things rather than the way we would think about things. One of the great questions that Rick Warren taught me to ask was, look, when you read the Gospels, look at how Jesus treated people. Look at how he valued people. There's so much to learn from that. So don't copy the customs of the world. When Scripture transforms us, God transforms us, then we learn to know God's will, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, I've got an illustration we're going to pop up there. It's a ruler, a level, and how important is that tool? It's incredibly important. Uh, Have you ever been in a house where the floor wasn't level? You know, up in New England, we stayed in a bed and breakfast one time, And the bed in the bedroom, they had blocks of wood under some of the legs because the floor wasn't level. I mean, things being level, what is level? It is a standard. And so we have a standard we use, inches, 
What if you made up your own standard for what an inch is? Instead of it being an inch, you made it an inch and a quarter. But you wouldn't even know it's an inch and a quarter because you don't believe in inches. Are you with me? If we don't have a standard of truth, what do we do? We live by our own wits. We live by our own feelings. We, we, we need an absolute standard of truth outside of self, above self. little quote there from Francis Schaeffer. When society is absolute, there are no absolutes. When people make up their own rules about what's right and wrong, then it's their opinion. But when I look at God's word and it says, I should love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's the number one thing he's looking for. And he, he wants me to make him God and not any other God. And then he gets into my life and he says, uh, tell the truth. Don't lie. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. Don't kill. See, those are all absolutes that come from Scripture. And when you don't have those, what do you have? You have people living out a life simply out of self-indulgence. And so we've got a little bit of that going on today. Okay, I need to move along because I'm taking too long on every point. I've never preached a message longer than 20 minutes in my life, but I've been known to put two back to back. <laughs> All right, what does the word do in our life? Well, it sets us apart. Uh, Jesus prayed for us in John 17, 14. Jesus' longest prayer is John chapter 17. It's his prayer for his followers, his disciples, worth reading. In it, he says, he prays, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And then he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So as we encounter the word of God, we're going to get a mission from God. God is going to send us into our arenas of life to represent the light of his kingdom and the goodness of his kingdom, who he is. The church is called the body of Christ. And so when we, as a part of the church, are living out our lives, then we become an expression of Christ, what his hands would do, what his feet would do, what his mouth would say, what his ears would listen to. We become an expression of Christ. And so he said, as the Father sent me into the world, I am sending you. Now, Jesus had a number of imperatives, things most important to him. And I'm going to go over these rapidly. He was in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. And on the Sabbath, the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, 
the blind will see, and the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. In other words, this is who I am. This is my imperative. This is most important. And they kicked him out of town when he said this. Okay. What else did Jesus say that you could pick up from the gospel as imperatives? Mark 10, 45, he said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, as Jesus went into the world, we go into the world as servants, doing what God would have us do, God working in us and through us. He also said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We're not just to love each other, we're to love lost people. Now, I want to give you just one little saying about that. We should not expect lost people to live like they're saved. (laughs) We should not expect them to talk like they're saved. We should not expect them to value the things that saved people value. If if we do, we'll become critical of them. And anybody you're critical of, you'll have no chance of reaching. And so what has God called us to do? He's called us to seek lost people and to love lost people. Years ago, I took the Billy Graham School of Evangelism before a crusade in Denver. and, And they said... The average Christian, after they've been a Christian for one year, no longer has any lost friends because they've become a part of a holy huddle called a church. (laughs) And so our mission, though, is to encounter people on their way to God and be a vehicle that God can use in helping people take the next step. And so when we just show that we care for somebody, God works in that. When we listen to somebody, I'm not talking about going out and standing on a street corner. Don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about in your day-to-day walk, being sensitive to people, engaging them, and then asking God for the right time to be able to engage them spiritually. You find out They don't go to church. You simply invite them. You ask them to sit with you. It's not a hard thing to do. What's the worst thing that can happen? They can say no. How many times has somebody told you no? Well, if you get your feelings hurt easily, you're in trouble. I mean, you know, how do these people work today that have these jobs selling on the telephone? Man, alive, you'd have to have a hide, wouldn't you, to do that? Oh, my. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, there are seven statements he makes where he says, I am, and he describes himself. The one we're most familiar with probably is in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so he's stating in his imperatives, his imperative is to show people the way, the truth, and the life. He also said, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world. I am the gate, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, and I'm the vine. That's all in the Gospel of John. And so Jesus says, he commissions us. Look now at John 20, 21. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And so Jesus wants us to have an imperative that resembles his. 
where we see that God wants to work in us and through us to touch people for his kingdom. I think the greatest experience in the world is to have God use you in some small way to touch another person. You know, you could be in a church as big as Brookwood on any Sunday, you could be sitting next to somebody you don't know and their life has a huge hole in it. And if you engage that person and, and just say, it's great to sit by you today. I'm so glad you're here. Warmth, just a smile at people. Don't underestimate how God can use you once you see yourself as a person that God wants to use to touch the lives of others. Of course, we have the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. Now, I want to move on into encountering the Bible. I want to say this up front. Applying truth is a fight. I'll be 79 in, uh, next week. The fight is not easier today than it was when I was 12 years old and was first saved. The fight spiritually is always going to be there, and you've got to persevere Every man in here has feet of clay. Nobody in here has got it all figured out. And there are ways the enemy seeks to destroy us and make us ineffective. And so it is a battle. And that's one of the reasons why it's great that you're here tonight and we're sitting around this t these tables because there is strength in relationships with other men. There's just a handful of guys that I've got that I can call and say things aren't going well for me right now, and they've got my back. We need people. We need each other because this is a fight. Look at this verse of Scripture. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Anybody have any struggles with that one? I mean, uh, is there something you're just dying to have of the world right now? Uh, a fishing boat, uh, a 55 pink Chevy convertible. <laughs> Boy, that was the thing when I was in high school. That's still a classic today, isn't it? But you see, the world comes after us and appeals to us. And everybody's trying to sell us something. And what do they use to come after men? I'll let you figure that out. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anybody loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, craving for physical pleasure. The lust of the eyes, a craving for everything we see. And the pride of life, pride in our achievements and possessions, comes not from the Father, but from the world. So the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to stay after you all of your life. And you are never going to sprout wings and live like an angel on earth. You believe me? The fight is going to be there. What's the key to this? What did, what did Winston Churchill say? Never, 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 never. How many nevers give up? 
Never give up. When he was surrounded by people that saying, we've got to make a treaty with Hitler, even if it means surrendering our sovereignty, what did he say? Never give up. Never give up. And that's the key. No matter how deep the hole you may fall into, God's love for you is deeper than that hole. And when you study Scripture, you're going to find all kinds of imperfect people in Scripture. I mean, David was a mess. And yet, look how God used him. So you may be a mess. Don't minimize how God can use you. You know, David was a poet, a musician, and a warrior. How do you have those kind of gifts in one person? He wrote the 23rd Psalm. He wrote other psalms that, that, that for sure were music. As a young man, he slayed a giant. He was surrounded by men so loyal to him that when he was thirsty and said he'd like a drink of water from the well back at Bethlehem, some of his mighty men went back there and got the water and brought it to him. Yet, you could say maybe he's the worst father in Scripture. His children were totally out of control. They were an absolute mess. So you go back and read 1 Samuel, you'll find all of this. I'm not telling you to start there. What I'm saying, though, is that the Bible is a real book because it doesn't just tell you people are saints. It tells you they're sinners. And you can see their flaws and the holes in their lives, and that should give you hope. It should not give us excuses. Never use the failure of another person as your excuse to fail. But see hope that God is going to work in a willing heart and a heart that perseveres and doesn't give up. Another verse of scriptures, Ephesians 6, 12. Um, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. All right, next Next slide. The Bible study that we hear about is called inductive Bible study. And inductive is just a fancy word for discovering truth. Human logic discovering truth. And so as we study the Bible, the first thing we do is observe it. We read it. We simply see what's written. Then we try to interpret it or understand it. And when we do that, one of the reasons the study Bible helps is that all Scripture was written in a context of circumstances. What we're going to study tonight in 1 Corinthians 13 was written because the church in Corinth was abusing spiritual gifts and making the miraculous gifts more important than the fruit of the Spirit. And the Apostle Paul just speaks great truth into that. So that's interpretation, understanding the background of it. But then application, that's living it. That's applying it to your life, okay? And so we want to do all three of these when we encounter the Bible. And so you see Warren's keys to application. Is there, you know, Warren loves acrostics. I don't especially care for them. Maybe it's not, you know, 
But this crazy acrostic, what is it? Space pets. I mean, what in the world? How did he come up with that? But what it is, when you encounter Scripture, is there a sin to confess? Is there a promise to believe, an attitude to change, a command to obey, an example to follow, a prayer to offer, an error to avoid, truth to affirm, something to thank God for? That pretty well covers it. So anyway, I gave you a copy of that as a handout tonight. Now, what I'd like for us to do tonight in the time we have left, and I'm going to move rapidly, is look at a key word in the Bible. If you're doing a Bible study, you may come upon a word and discover, hey, I need to know the depth of the meaning of this word. I need to know more about it. That's where you can use some of the tools that I gave you. But the word we're going to look at tonight is love. And the word love, let's go on to the next slide. The, the Greek for it is agape. Many of you, how many of you heard agape before? Let me see. All right, huge number of you. Okay. I wanted to pick something familiar. Agape is a Greek word used in the New Testament uniquely, a coined word for the love of God. A Greek word that was used in the Greek language but the writers of the New Testament gave it a special meaning, a special meaning. It's not used in the classic Greek writing, so they're not borrowing it from there. Agape, we're going to get on to the other words for love. It is God's definitive love in Christ, definitely undeserved, unearned, and not based on attractiveness or beauty of the object being loved. It's not based on beauty or merit. It is sacrificial, faithful, and eternal. What a word. It's bestowed or given to those who trust in Jesus and given by Jesus as the new commandment for his followers. Here's the scripture. A new command I give you, Jesus said, agape one another. As I have agaped you, so you must agape one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you agape one another. Pretty crucial, isn't it? So I better understand some of the depth of the meaning of this word because we use the word love in a lot of different ways, Okay. Let's, let's go on to the, uh, to the next verse there. This is important. Anyone who does not agape does not know God, for God is agape. That's the verse that says God, the essence of God is holy love. That's who God is. That's the essence of who God is. You could say it's the DNA of God is this agape love, this holy love that isn't human at all. So you do the word study in your Bible, and a lot of the study Bibles would have these notes. Let's go to the next slide. Agape is God's definitive love in Christ. The next Greek word that's used, and this is used several times in the New Testament, phylos, 
you know the city Philadelphia? Philos is, is the first part of Philos. Adelphos is brother. What is Philadelphia? The city of brotherly love. It's two Greek words. Philos is mutual affection, friendship, brotherly love. There's another word for love used by the Greeks, especially in Greek philosophy. The word eros and our word erotic comes from that. So to identify sensual love, seeking gratification for self, that word would be eros. To express friendship to someone would be phylos. But to express God's love is agape. And so what is agape? Where in the Bible can I study agape love? Well, we can study it in 1 Corinthians. The greatest chapter in love on the Bible is 1 Corinthians 13. Okay? And so we're going to look at that real quick. First, we're going to observe it. We're going to read it. We'll be asking, okay, who, what, why, those basic questions. And if you go into a commentary on 1 Corinthians 13, what they'll say is the Apostle Paul is writing the church at Corinth to deal with numerous problems including the misuse of spiritual gifts, okay? If you're going to read a chapter, it's good to go back and read the verses leading up to that chapter. Gives you the context, okay? So here are some verses leading up to it. In chapter 12, he asks the question, okay, you're all interested in spiritual gifts and what you think are the most important ones and the ones with the most prestige, Are we all apostles? No. Are we all prophets? No. Are we all teachers? No. Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. One of the translations says, let me show you the more excellent way. The more excellent way. And then he goes into 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. If you read a commentary, they'll outline it for you. And so the commentary here says, The absolute necessity of love. These first three verses are about the necessity of agape. Verse 1, if I had all these gifts that you're so interested in, if I could speak all the languages of earth and even of angels, but didn't love others, I'd only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, in the notes of a study Bible, it will say, Noisy gongs and clanging cymbals were used in heathen pagan worship. And so even if you've got these fantastic gifts, if you don't love people, it's not any different than being a pagan. Wow. If I had the gift of prophecy, declaring truth, insight into the future, 
If I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, even if I had faith and I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. Another translation says, I am nothing. If I have all knowledge, if I can prophesy, if I have such faith I could move a mountain but didn't love others, I'm nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. So even if I have sensational personal gifts, even spiritual gifts, but I don't care about people, I haven't got it. I've missed it. I'm nothing. It's an absolute necessity, okay? Let's go on to the next verses. I'm going quickly. The next several verses are the characteristics of love, verses 4 through 7. Those of you that want these notes later, I'm going to give you my email, and you can email me, and I'll give them to you, okay? Love is patient. Now he's going to say, what is love? He gives us two things about love, patience and kindness. Those would be great word studies to dig into what patience is biblically and to dig into what kindness is. Two of the fruit of the Spirit he picks out, patience and kindness. And then he tells us what love is not. Agape is not jealous or envious or boastful or proud or rude doesn't dishonor others it does not demand its own way it's not self-seeking <laughs> this one kind of grabs me it is not irritable <laughs> easily angered how many of you have ever lived in a large city a lot of you, most of you. Lived in Houston, you know, for uh, 11 years. Before that, I was in Denver three and a half years. How do you have to drive in a big city? Aggressive. If you don't drive aggressive, what happens? Man, they're, they're, you're in trouble. You're going to have people shouting at you. If you don't step on the gas as soon as the light turns green, the horn is going to blow. There is a characteristic of Greenville drivers I've noticed. It's called the Greenville line. If people are going to turn in a certain direction, they'll get in that lane a mile before they have to and not change lanes. In a city, you know what you do? You know there's going to be one slow car up ahead, and you're going to be able to pull in. Drives my wife nuts when I do that. <laughs> She'll say, you're not going to get in. And what will I say? Watch this. Watch this. Do I ever get irritable with other drivers? Oh, my. That is a sad characteristic I've developed. You can tell I'm under conviction. So maybe the Holy Spirit will show me something about it I need to see. 
okay? It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Wow. If somebody has wronged you and you keep using it against them, they will become embittered. And it'll mess you up too. We could go into that. There's a whole message there. Doesn't keep a record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice or when evil wins out. It rejoices when the truth wins out. And then he says, love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance or perseveres. Now, we could stop and just go through every one of these. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to let you do that. He then moves on to the eternalness of love. Verse 8, he says, love never fails. Now, he's going back to apply it to the church. He says, those of you that are so excited about being prophets, he says, where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, unknown tongues, speaking in tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Why? For we know in part and we prophesy in part. We've only got a part of things right now. Um, there are some times that I know I have preached from the pulpit and acted like I knew all there was to know about something. Let me assure you, I didn't. And one of the things most unattractive about a Christian is arrogance about the truth. We are called to be a humble people and a gentle people and to treat people with dignity and respect, not arrogance. Wow. Slap me by the face. All right. They will cease. Tongues, they'll be still. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when completeness or perfection comes, what is in part disappears. What's he talking about now? He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about eternity. A time is coming when things will be complete. They will be different. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. And so I think he's saying to the Corinthian church, you're acting like a bunch of children and you need to grow up and understand the importance of love and that you're not more important than one another because you've got a special gift of some kind. He says this, now we see only a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, completely, even as I am fully, completely known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is agape, is love. This chapter can change your life. This one chapter can change your life. And I'm going to shut up. I've already gone too long. How long did I speak? An hour? Longer? What's that? 45 minutes? 
Oh, th 20 minutes, yeah. 20 and 20 is 40. You guys have been a great crowd. I appreciate you being here tonight. Um, I don't get to speak much anymore. We got a bunch of young guys around here now that need the opportunity, and I want them to have the opportunity, and I love every one of them. But some of you ask me, hey, when are you going to preach again? Thank you for feeling that way. I appreciate it. But let's, uh, let's appreciate the guys we've got too, okay? And uh, can I just say a prayer? Lord, I just thank you for these men. I thank you uh, that they're here tonight and spiritually hungry. And I pray you'd encourage each and every one to become engaged in your word so you can speak to them in a greater way. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. What a powerful message. If you were encouraged by this message, you can learn more about men's ministry and other adult ministries at Brookwood by visiting brookwoodchurch.org forward slash adults or on the Brookwood Church app. Thanks for listening and have a great week.